0: Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and we're back with another group show today, although not the same group as usual. Haley and Zach are off today, but joining us from Sydney is Cycling Tips Senior Tech Editor Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hello. And we also have a very special guest. We have Cycling Tips Tech Editor Ronan McLaughlin from Northern Ireland, who has graciously agreed to stay up late with us tonight for today's show. Hi, Ronan.
1: Hello. Good to be, uh be back a uh, long time since I was on Nerd Alert. It, it felt weird there to say. Uh, hear you say, I'm your host, James Wong. I was expecting to hear, I'm your host, kelly Fritz," <laughs> from, <laughs> from the Narmouth podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It has been interesting
0: because Ronan, you know, I, I used to do the regular Nerd Nugget on the weekly show, um, but prompted by a variety of things. Uh, you've pretty much taken over that duty for me. So I appreciate you giving me back my Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, my pleasure.
1: <laughs> uh, how's the leg? The leg is almost 100%, I'd say, probably 99%. Uh, we, you and I were just chatting before, and I said it's actually feels better on the bike than it did before I broke it. So it was a it was a weird way to go about it, but at least there's some positive to come out of it. <laughs> I feel better so, on the
0: bike. So at what point are we gonna see an article from you talking about uh, a, a prescribed training plan where you go ahead and give yourself a TIB-Fib so that you can improve the strength of your leg? <laughs>
1: um I, I i pitched it already and it got shot down apparently there's some uh, complications mm. with suggesting that people break legs and stuff but um mm. yeah did, what, did you have the surgeon like build in like a virus
2: wedge type thing into your, <laughs> into your tibia just to help the alignment
0: or d- why is it yeah, feeling better
1: i think he took it on himself to do that and yeah i I, I had no part what to play. a bloke. It, but
0: yeah if you actually look really closely at, at Ronan's x-ray there's a little s in there and <laughs> hell. He's he's been officially branded. Uh Dave, you are you're actually about to get on a plane soon ish to come over to the US.
2: My my heart just skipped a beat. You telling me that cuz I have a lot to do before I get on a plane. <laughs> but uh yeah, I'm I don't know, it's almost almost a week out since I
0: since we uh yeah, since I come over to where you are and we hang out. Well, it'll be good to have you over here. Dave is going to be coming over for our next field test event. Uh, we're going to be testing a whole bunch of gravel and endurance road bikes uh, over in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. So if you happen to see a bunch of people out there uh, may or may not be in cycling tips kit or T-shirts or whatnot, feel free to swing by and say hi. But we will be there enjoying the buffed out gravel of Steamboat. And Dave, I think you'll be experiencing that for the first time. But mm-hmm. fingers crossed for good weather. It's Pretty good out there. Anyway, we're all here now, uh, and we've got a lot of ground to cover in terms of tech news. Uh, We have some teaser images of Trek's crazy-looking new Madone. We've got a whole bunch of other new road bikes that landed on the UCI approval list recently that we're going to speculate about. Uh, We have Pinarello's kind of head-scratcher of a gravel race bike. Uh, Shimano has finally answered our pleas for a polished aluminum groupset, sort of. Uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about the constantly evolving state of retail, and we'll catch up with Dave's trip to the Handmade Bicycle Show Australia in Melbourne. Uh, and then, of course, we will finish up this episode with a round of Ask a Mechanic. All right, so Trek has not announced officially this new Madone just yet, um, but uh, it's already being raced at the Dauphiné by the Trek Segafredo men's team. And to say it's a bit of a departure from the current version would be quite the understatement. Uh, Ronan, you wrote this one up, actually, so what are we looking at here?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a replacement for the for the current Madone. It's uh sticking with the Madone sort of recent uh tradition I guess of of being a, a dedicated aero bike. Uh, it wasn't initially that way for the Madone but has been for the last few models. And this one has yeah all the sort of aero cues you might expect but then one that we certainly were not expecting which is uh basically a big gap between the the top of the seat post, and the bottom of the top tube. And Trek seemed to have something in there. It's, it looks like ISO flow, which suggests some sort of replacement for the ISO speed decoupler that they previously had in the Madone. And perhaps that indicates it's less of a aero tweak and, and more of a sort of comfort tweak. But yeah, I'll, I'll, it sort of raises more questions than uh, questions and answers to this, these few pictures that came out. From the pictures I've seen, it sort of looks like Trek might be one of the
2: first to embrace the relaxed UCI rules from a year ago or so, where the, the saddle doesn't necessarily have to uh, sit in the same intersection as a
1: straight c tube. Is that is that kind of the vibe you're getting? That was one of the. It was kind of the first thing that crossed my mind when I seen it. Um, but my understanding of those that relaxation was that you could move the seat tube out of the you know the line of the seat post effectively uh you know either forward of it or or rearward of it and this seems to be pretty much in line it just the seat post is suspended above the seat tube rather than being inserted inside the seat tube as we usually see Uh, now it could be you know the the photos are not great so you you know you could be right there It's, it's hard to tell but it looks like it's still pretty much in line or very very close to in line but yeah, perhaps still it is those rules that has have made that design possible.
0: So what's interesting to me is that um, although the new Madone looks really, really different from the current one, in concept it's actually quite similar because the current one, uh, in profile, it looks like a fairly normal frame, like kind of like you know one piece, you know one cohesive big piece of carbon sort of thing. Um, but in actuality, what you have is Sort of like an L-shaped seat mast that the saddle is connected to, uh, with that ISO speed decoupler pivot thing that's at the seat cluster. Um, so the seat tube is actually not connected to the seat mast on the current Madone either. Uh, it just looks like it is. It just it it they've done a pretty good job of disguising it. Whereas on this new one, what you have now is you almost sort of have like this extension coming off of the back of the top tube, and then you sort of just it just takes a like a a big almost like 90-degree bend to turn into the that integrated seat mast. And then that seat mass is just not connected to the top of the seat tube at all, which again looks really weird, but is kind of how it is now. Um, but the big benefit with this arrangement seems to be that uh, I mean, it, it. I think we're expecting that it's going to be quite a bit lighter than the current bike, because that was always kind of the biggest complaint of the current Madone is that it's quite heavy. Um, so if if Trek are able to pull this off in the way that we think essentially what they've done is they, they've sort of like cantilevered the the seat mass to give the rider some level of comfort that I think is presumably that's similar to what you get right now with the with the ISO speed um, with the ISO speed setup but without a whole bunch of weight and obviously it's not adjustable like it is on the current one um, but it, I'm gonna guess it's gonna lop off quite a lot of weight Um I mean I would love for it to to lop off some cost too because I would think it's maybe a little less complicated it's probably harder to mold but chances are it's probably more expensive. Nothing's getting cheaper. Nope, nope, nothing's getting cheaper. Uh and then up front on that Madone it does look like we have a different uh different sort of internal cable routing setup because currently um things are uh yeah they they kind of run down the run down the the front and the sides of the steer tube. Down the down the middle of the upper headset bearing, like, is pretty common. Um, but what we see right now is some sort of, like, cap or cover or something on the backside of the one-piece stem and bar. I guess we don't really know what that is just yet, do we?
1: No, we don't. I did see a picture of it somewhere with the cap removed. Um, and it's not like the cables are or the hoses are sitting just, you know, right behind that cap. Um, it's kind of like the, the cap that we used to have in the Venge, I, I think where, you know, it just sort of, it, it smoothed out the airflow, I guess, behind the stem. Um, it's a not fairing, fairing. It's a it's a not fairing, fairing. Exactly. Yes. Um, but yeah, the, the entire cockpit seems sort of redesigned and again, presumably, um, you know, a couple of arrow tweaks in there, but also to drop the, the weight a little bit, you know, the, the, current or the previous Madonna, now i guess it, it it was known to be on the heavier side of world tour level bikes um so certainly you know, shaving a few grams off there will will help but i was sort of struck by you know the rest of the front end just as given how bizarre the the new seat tube design is how normal looking the the new front end is it was like too contrasting uh it was like they had two different teams working on the front and on the rear of the, the bike i thought and you know the, the front end of that new new madonna especially i thought was you know really clean really uh sort of modern um yeah just just looked really really neat um but yeah then we then we get to the back and uh all those those questions again so it'll be, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see just you know I'd, i'm sort of looking at it thinking They've obviously resisted the urge to, to go to drop seat stays, which everybody seems to be doing now. Um, and I wonder are we going to, you know, what track have or how Trek have managed to compensate for the supposed aero gains of, of dropping seat stays? I, I don't know if they've improved the front end so much that it makes up for the the losses of keeping those uh, a, a raised seat stays or if they're going to tell us that, you know, the air in that area is so dirty in a way. It doesn't really make all that much difference. So I'm sort of, you know, these I had heard recently that there was a new bidone on the way. I'd been told it was quite a wacky, not wacky, but I'd been told it was kind of intriguing. I mean, wacky's a fair descriptor here. <laughs> intriguing, let's say, or in uh, design, uh, and yeah, it didn't it didn't disappoint. But now I'm sort of more interested to hear, you know, what exactly Trek's claims are going to be for for this new frame.
0: Well, uh, we don't have. Um, uh, I guess, I don't think we have an official release date that we can share at least anyway, but, uh, seeing as how the tour is coming up and seeing as how Trek Segafredo is for sure going to be riding this bike at the tour, seeing as how they're already using it at the Dauphiné, I think it's a safe bet that we're going to see official info probably right before the start in Copenhagen. So just in just a few weeks time, we'll know a whole lot more. Um, the Madone is not the only new road bike that we know is going to be coming out because, uh, the UCI, very conveniently, uh, fairly regularly updates its list of approved bikes for competition. And another new one that just popped up on that list is Canyon's Versatile uh, Ultimate All-Round Road Racer. Again, we don't have a whole lot of information to go on with this, uh, but from the spy photos that we've seen, it looks like it's not really going to be a dramatic redesign, but maybe the sort of updates you'd expect. Uh, Ronan, you actually wrote this one up too. So, I mean, we we only have one sort of not great photo of this thing, right?
1: yeah this one photo of the new ultimate or, or what we guess is a new ultimate sort of i think it popped up about a week or two ago on on weight weenies on the on the forum uh it's not a great photo it's head-on only um but it, you know you can clearly see from it that canyon have opted for fully internal cable routing you know like it or not that's i, I guess <laughs> we all could have guessed that was coming uh and you know increased uh tire clearance seems it you know, it looks to me anyway like a, a set of 30s or something that um, the movie star rider has on that bike. So, and there, there still seems to be plenty of clearance there. So that's a, an increase from what the, the Ultimate had previously. Uh, but apart from that, yeah, it does sort of, it, you know, it very much keeps the sort of ultimate um, design of, of previous. And presumably it's going to be lightweight sort of uh, traditional riding Bike. I see Dave wants to hop on there.
2: I just, uh, I mean, we're saying like it it hasn't received a massive overhaul, but that bike was released in 2016
0: and it's still competitive. Yep. Yeah. Because we, I mean, it, yeah, we have mentioned several times before that for as much as road bikes in particular are continuing to get better, I mean, we are very much in the realm of diminishing returns. And I think we have been for quite a while. Um, because, Again, just to reemphasize the point, I mean, road bikes have been really, really good for a very long time now. So there doesn't seem to be that much that companies can do now to make dramatic improvements on what has already been out there. Certainly, given like UCI technical uh, technical constraints, I mean, if a bike company were to come out and just ignore UCI rules altogether, then I think that is where we would see some more innovation or some more some more of these dramatic differences. Um, but no, I don't. I don't think we're expecting anything massive on this ultimate. Just probably incremental improvements all around. But yeah, I, I don't think that
2: that ultimate gets enough praise for for what it achieved. I guess because when it was oh, released, fantastic. it was when it was <coughs> released. I would argue it was the the best balance bike of comfort, aero, lightweight, and stiffness on the market for for some time. Um, and it's taken quite a while for the other brands to match it in that
1: space kind of hard to improve on that then
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean and, and it's it's a little unfortunate for at least for canyon's sake anyway that that the the air road had has had so many issues like with the with the handlebar uh, with like you know Matthew Vanderpool breaking that handlebar basically just right after the, the bike's release, and then uh kind of persistent issues with seat post wear from kind of grit getting into that space where the seat post is supposed to flex that sort of thing um but yeah it, it's it's unfortunate that. Canyon's reputation has been sullied by that because they really do otherwise make some pretty fantastic bikes that, I, like you said, Dave, I feel like they get overlooked just because it's almost just sort of expected that they're going to be really good.
1: Um, and that's kind of it. I guess as well, you know, what what is the alternative here? If they went and, you know, turned the Ultimate into some sort of do-it-all light arrow frame that was, you know, the, the one bike solution that we see so often now, it would probably... Lose some of his character, and it's also probably not what most ultimate customers are are looking for in a in a bike either. So you know, they it, they're sort of I guess they've gone down a path of if it's not broke, then don't fix it, and really they've just integrated cable routing. Which yeah, again, maybe the people buying this bike don't want integrated integrated cable routing. I, I don't know, possibly to do for for racing, but. Uh, the wider tire clearance is certainly a, a welcome addition, uh, and then we couldn't really make out from the photo that we have you know, w- which cockpit they've they've opted for. Is it something specific for the Ultimate, or is it a carryover of that the one that was initially problematic, and I believe has been resolved since and is no longer problematic? But uh, it did have some sort of James. You probably know more about it, having ridden the the air road, but I know that CP zero zero one eight cockpit on the air roads, you, you could in, increase the, the height of the handlebars without actually uh, adding in, uh, spacers and that, isn't that right? So, you know, that, if I got that wrong. To be completely honest with you, Ron, I don't remember.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I do remember that that bike has kind of a, a pretty unusual wedge sort of design to, to, uh, to raise and lower the front end. Um, and it does have, um, the way that it telescopes or the way that it's kind of overlapping with the steer tube, it actually kind of reminded me of some old, of like an old quill stem. Yeah. Um, so it does, it it does sort of have some design elements of that. So anyway, I, I don't, I don't know if they'll retain that from, from the, uh, I guess what they have right now, but again, that's, that's another bike that I'm sure we're going to find out more, uh, more info on pretty soon, because that's probably a bike that will also be used in the tour. Mm-hmm. Um, last bike that I really want to mention or I guess talk about um, from this UCI list is presumably this new Giant Propel. Um, mm. And Giant has been exceptionally annoyingly good about not having any pictures come out about this thing. Uh, Maybe it's just that fast. <laughs> right, all the pictures are blurry. <laughs> like, we really don't know anything about this bike at all. Um I would have to assume we, it's we, still a full we it exists bike, But that's about it. But that's it. Yeah. Right? Like we have like no one's really taken pictures of it of any of the riders in training or like no one's been racing on it yet that we know of anyway. Um so right now it is completely up in the air as far as what this thing is gonna be or what it'll look
1: like. If anyone had been racing on it and <clears throat> a getty photographer caught them on it, I'd have seen it by now. <laughs> <laughs> so i don't think
0: anybody has raced on it yet uh, actually there is one other bike that i wanted to talk about i forgot Um uh, and we do have a picture of this one this is the new scott foil uh which recently broke cover thanks to john Degenkolb's instagram account of all people thank you very much uh from what this looks like to us uh it actually kind of looks a lot like a cervello s5 or at least it has a lot of s5 q's in it uh it's got like a rear offset seat tube that kind of very closely follows the rear wheel and kind of a more upright aero profile seat post kind of other stuff that you'd expect deeper tube cross sections very very dropped seat days um aside from that i don't know if we have a whole lot of info but again that is another bike that we should have a whole bunch of info on right before the tour so this is going to be a very busy month for us
1: and in it's particular. that that new foil you know that the photo we you seen know, again only one photo of it we've currently seen but it's Dramatic sort of divergence from the current foil design—a um, bike that it seems to have fallen out of favour with Scott teams over recent years. It, of course, Matt Heyman won Paris Roubaix on that bike back in 2016, but again, it's another bike that hasn't really seen an update since that. Uh, but this new one is—you know—it it, apart from being an aero an aero bike, it bears very, very little resemblance to that current Scott foil. So, kind of excited to see again what this bike is all about and um yeah it was it was probably the one that caught most, my attention most uh of the bikes we've seen recently well apart from that trek of course and <laughs> the uh the hole in the back and one other question i had about that was just that you know how, how do we now route router di2 batteries from the seat post in the trek, new trek madone to <laughs> to the uh the bottom bracket well you don't you don't. I was going to
0: say it's probably not. It's probably not in the seat mast anymore. Yes. Trek's done
2: hatches underneath the bottle cages before, so I'd imagine they'd be sticking to something similar. Yeah, I guess so too. Yeah, yeah. Unless it's a it's it's a sram bike only. No, no Shimano allowed. <laughs> Lines with their sponsorship. Uh, one thing that's interesting to me with all this is when we saw the the last giant propel launch it was kind of surrounded by a bunch of other new aero bike releases so they they released the scott foil disc at a similar time from memory, uh i'm blanking on what other ones there were there was the cannondale um super six system six system six system six uh and i remember doing kind of like a fun social media thing where i i kind of silhouetted all the bikes and asked people to guess you know tell you know tell us which one's which and uh they were hilariously similar once you remove the logos but what's (laughs) quite interesting now is that uh from the pictures we've seen of the bikes being released there actually are differences that the the brands are seemingly taking their own paths again which is quite cool so uh yeah i mean obviously there are similarities between them but i'm quite excited that yeah you can can actually pick the difference between a lot of these bikes
0: it's almost like if you relax the rules that govern bikes design that are used in competition. It's almost like once you kind of relax things a little bit, you have some more design freedom. Mm. Weird. I don't know how
2: you're pulling that bow, James. That's that's quite a quite a stretch of an imagination. I know it's quite, quite a that's leap. A quite a leap. take. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway,
0: I mean, we may we may see another period of convergence, kind of like what we've seen now of just. Because again, while the, while the UCI rules have been relaxed, ultimately what people, well, what we, I think what we seem to find out is that uh, companies often eventually kind of land on similar solutions for similar problems, given similar constraints. Um, so things are kind of all over the place at the moment. Um, my guess is we probably will see things converging in a few years' time. So I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, it is pretty cool to see
1: a whole bunch of different approaches to stuff. It's, it's refreshing. It'll it'll be interesting to see them which which uh, if there is a convergence which uh, of which of the new designs with that convergence uh, is clo- closely resembles what we have now in these new bikes and which of these new bikes quickly disappears. Uh, that, that in other words, which have got it right and which have got it wrong. That'll be that'll be interesting to see.
0: Totally, totally. So speaking of uh, design freedom and doing things a little differently. So it's not just new road bikes that we're talking about today. Uh, we also have the debut of Pinarello's new Grevel F. So Pinarello is aiming this at, quote, gravel racing, unquote, uh, with an aggressive tagline of full gas everywhere, uh, which to me, I feel like you need to, like, yell that every time you read that or something. Uh, but this thing basically looks like a Dogma F with a lot more tire clearance. Um, I Certainly in terms of the two profiles and, like, the super asymmetrical frame design that... Characteristic on the curvy fork thing. It, it also has room for 700 by 50 mil tires. Uh, fully internal cable routing, as you would expect. Uh, the launch video that was included with this bike, uh, with the mark, uh, with the press pack, uh, was chock full of skids and bunny hops. Uh, and it also has a sky high stack dimension for all six sizes that seems to completely undo all the talk about going fast and racing and all that. So, what am I missing here? Because some of these things don't seem to go together.
2: Well, the people buying this bike are not the ones being sponsored to win on the bike. They're the the people buying this bike are the ones that need a very high stack.
0: I mean, if if I'm when I was looking at the geometry chart, I, I am not a particularly fit racer. I would say that I'm not unusually flexible, that sort of thing. Um, however, for the size bike that I would ride for the sort of reach that I'd be looking at. The stack is something like 60 mils higher than what I would typically want to run. I mean, this is quite upright for that what is, what is supposed, to, supposed to be a full gas everywhere racing bike.
2: So I'm, I'm going to pull apart Pinarello's marketing in a way that they're not going to be happy about, but they have previously had their race bikes and then they've tried to sell off the back of that endurance bikes that better fit their clientele. And they have dare I say they haven't succeeded at doing that. Uh, and instead the clientele end up riding the dogmas, but with a ton of unsafe spaces. Uh, and I base this on the fact that I, I used to work at a retailer, which was what I believe was the biggest Pinarello deal outside of Italy. Uh, and I saw a lot of sketchily uh, set up <laughs> dogmas heading out the door, which I had nothing to do with. Um, so yeah, I I think Pinarello are coming around to the fact that their clientele require a taller stack, and that the bike being used at by the professional races is the bike that their clientele want to buy. Uh, so yeah, I think it it's it's potentially a compromised product for the person being given the bike, but it's probably the
1: right move for the person buying it. I don't know because I. I- I, I agree with you totally, but I don't think it's right for the person buying it either, because you know it's a it is still a bike, at least designed with going fast somewhat in mind. But then you've, you're or know, at least the
0: image of going fast.
1: Yeah, the image of going fast, but you've like complete lack of mounts anywhere, which someone buying this bike would presumably want. And then yeah, there was a few other things I'm sort of pulling a blank right now, but there was a couple of other things about it when I was writing up that article. I was like, is this for a racing gravel rider? Or is this for an adventure gravel rider? And I, the conclusion I came to was that it didn't really suit either in, in the end up. It was sort of somewhere in the middle uh, and didn't really suit anybody too fantastically. I mean, it,
0: it seems to be the bike for someone who obviously has an awful lot of money to spend, who wants to presumably make sure people who see them know that they have a lot of money to spend on their bike um, for, for what looks like a very gravel racing-ish kind of machine. Um, but also that rider probably isn't going to be heading out for longer than a couple of hours anyway, because I think, does it even have three bottle mounts or is it just two? Uh it has three. Uh, there's one. It, there's and, one underneath the down tube? Yes, yes. Um, but that's it. So you're looking at what kind of like a three hour-ish ride, something like that, depending on weather. So you'll have to presumably stop or refill somewhere. There's no, there's no like bento box mount on the top, which seemingly is a almost kind of a requirement for like a super long distance gravel bike there's no mounts for kind of like other like i don't know like fenders or bags or anything like that so it's, it's definitely not a uh like an adventure gravel bike despite the fact that it fits 700 by 50s uh, I, say, I is it safe to say that all three of us are, all three of us are scratching our heads a little bit on this one yes but
2: also knowing the kind of person that buys a pinarello and that that kind of person i'm talking like Pinarello going to hate this, but I'm talking like people in their fifties and sixties, even edging onto seventies is what I would classify as the current Pinarello dogma customer. Uh, and yes, people younger than this do buy them, but majority. Uh, and I'm seeing a lot of those people, at least locally getting into gravel and getting into like overnight sort of uh, flash packing stays where they're, you know, take a credit card, and someone might drive all their stuff to the, you know, the end accommodation. They'll have a nice dinner out. Um,
0: Wh- so you which, don't to need be fair, Is a really good way to do things. Oh, I love <laughs> it. If you have, I'm
2: not if judging. You have it's, it's exactly a great way what, to what I do. It. Yeah, <laughs> that's my kind of uh, overnight stay riding. But um, yeah, forget about staying in the cold and cooking beans over a, a camp stove. I'd much rather go for a nice dinner. But uh, yeah, so I, I think that's that's where is is with this bike is it's a way to get its existing client you know its existing customer slightly
0: off-road well I dare say Pinarello doesn't exactly seem to be hurting a whole lot as a company in terms of their sales they seem to be doing just fine uh so I mean my guess Dave is you're probably right and Pinarello I think probably has a good handle on who's buying is on who's buying their bikes and for as much as it might
1: seem like a little bit of a head scratcher maybe they did nail it yeah, maybe I'm just sort of personally disappointed because when I first seen it, I thought, oh, this is, you know, it." I maybe don't particularly like the aesthetics of the bike, but if it's as fast as it's supposed to be, mm. uh, you know, maybe this is a bike for me. But then when I started reading through and I seen that geometry chart, I was like, I can't ride this bike. <laughs> 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 this isn't going to work for me. I'm going to be, you know, sitting straight up. You know, and I started to think about the, Will rave slr that i'm working on a review on at the moment and that very much is a bike for me it's you know it's a race gravel bike it's got a lot of aero sort of tendencies let's say uh, and it's got a geometry to match that and yeah i, I, I really enjoy that it, not for everybody likewise you know an adventure bike isn't for everybody but yeah i just came away from this Pinarello thinking it's not really either of those bikes it's again somewhere in the middle Hmm. I guess what I'm, what I'm curious about is, I mean,
0: Pinarello does sponsor a handful of pretty high-profile gravel racers. Um, I'm kind of wondering what they're going to race on because even if Pinarello has taken the arguably very wise move of developing a bike for people who are actually going to be buying them, when it comes to the people who are who they who they sponsor who are going to be racing uh, racing on this bike at various events, it really kind of does seem like they're not going to be able to get a position that they need on this bike, though.
2: I would I would say they're gonna end up doing the pro roadie thing, which is to get a bike two sizes down and end up with a ridiculously long stem that affects handling. Oof. That's gonna be really
0: strange on on gravel to run like mm-hmm. a 150 mil stem or something like that. Not ideal.
2: Hmm. Less than ideal. Less than ah. ideal. Ah, there you go. Crazy thought, crazy thought here, but maybe, maybe Pinarello has realized that, uh, super ultra low aggressive road positions don't play well to riding 200 miles on gravel.
0: (laughs) Or 350 as the case may be. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, well, I I guess to, to be fair, none of us have ridden this bike. So we are sort of kind of just speculating or kind of like opinionating based on, numbers and pictures and that sort of thing so maybe there's a test ride in our future so we'll see Um, but speaking of gravel so shimano did make some big additions to its grx family of gravel components recently Uh, so first up we have now uh shimano's first carbon gravel wheels Uh, on paper they look kind of ho-hum at least as far as the specs go you have a 25 mil inner width 32 mil uh, 32 mil depth they are like 1,460 grams, something like that. Uh, The warranty is pretty basic. It's basically just like Shimano's standard one-year warranty against uh, defects. Um, However, they are pretty reasonably priced at $1,400. They should have, in my opinion, pretty amazing bearings because it's a a dedicated cup and cone setup that looks to be borrowed from the Altegra line. Uh, The free hub mechanism could be faster engaging, but that also looks to be borrowed from the Altegra range. Um, But overall, I think... They're not necessarily terribly innovative in terms of technical specs, but uh, I expect that they will be built quite well. Uh, And again, in terms of the long-term durability, I think they'll actually probably be pretty good, which unfortunately is something that a lot of people don't look at. But I guess the only real disappointment is just that warranty. Uh, I would like to see a much better and more comprehensive warranty for a carbon wheel that's going to be used on gravel in terms of impact and that sort of thing. Um, Doesn't really seem to be Shimano's style, though. Sorry, Dave, do you want to say
2: something? I was just going to say, like a, they they probably ride quite well because Shimano has that reputation for making wheels that don't seem all that impressive on paper, but tend to end up having a nice ride quality and do their job as you expect them to. But yeah, I I'm completely agreeing with the that it feels a little a little bit of a weak proposition, especially when you factor in that warranty. Um, yeah, most pretty much all of their competitors, barring maybe. Fulcrum, I'm not. Sure, I can't remember off the top of my head what Fulcrum's warranty is, but a lot of their competitors in that space do have pretty generous warranties that protect you from from rim damage for the inevitable rock strike.
0: Yeah, at least if only just to provide some peace of mind that the money that you spent is not going to just disintegrate on the first rock that you hit. Mm. Um. So yeah, I mean, I guess aside from that, I I would imagine that they that they're probably still going to sell quite a few of these. Uh, maybe not like a super high volume thing, but. Like you said, Dave, I think, I, I feel like people who buy Shimano wheels tend to be people who um, maybe are a little bit more conservative in their choices and maybe look a little bit more at, you know, kind of like at the longer term as far as how long things last and durability and serviceability, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, we have, again, we this isn't a product that we tried, um, but I suspect it's been done pretty well. I mean, Shimano generally does a pretty good job with wheels, so. Um, Again, it's a little bit unfortunate that they aren't really as technically flashy as some other things that are out of the market right now. Like Shimano didn't make any claims for like, you know, arrow or stiffness or anything like that. Um, It just seems like a good, solidly built wheel. So maybe we'll find out. Um, But uh, a little bit more visually exciting, however, from the GRX range, uh, we have a new GRX limited group set that's got a whole bunch of polished aluminum bits on it and As at least from what I can tell from the pictures that we've seen, it looks super, super sweet. I've seen Uh, it in person. I was gonna say, but how likely is it that anyone out there is actually going to see this stuff in person other than at a trade show? Uh well, if you were at the Melbourne bike show over the weekend, you would have seen it in
2: person. But uh the handmade. Like I said, other than a trade other than a trade show. Yeah. Uh it's yeah, it's it's very limited.
0: There's 300 group sets globally. Well, actually, we should we should clarify that because Shimano actually called me on that um, because they did say they, they said they're not entirely sure where you got that 300 number from because from supposedly Shimano. there there were several thousand that were produced.
2: Okay, so all right, I got I got my numbers from Shimano Australia who said they have 10 of the 300.
0: 10. In all of Australia, and yeah. pretty much all, like I think ten of them were on bikes at the handmade bicycle show. Uh, Australia, no,
2: two, one of them or two of them, and all the others are sitting with Borm. So Borm <laughs> is the only one with <laughs> with them. But uh, yeah, so I was told three hundred. But if there's a few three, a few thousand, then that's that's more positive. Um, it's still
0: not very many, though.
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe they dropped the zero off the end. They they meant to say three thousand and sent you three hundred. Maybe. Maybe, but uh,
2: I mean, standard GRX is pretty limited at the moment as well. Uh, you know, anyone trying to buy <laughs> that group set isn't really having much luck at this moment. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it does look nice. I think in some cases, uh, I would I would agree with some of the comments on on the gallery that we did, where they they some people complained that they could have done more silver. Like, there's there's a few parts on them that you're like, you can tell that Shimano is just like, uh eh, close enough. Uh, Like the inner chain rings, or the if you get the single ring version, you get like a black, a a standard black chain ring. Uh, So I think there are some parts where Shimano probably could have taken it further, but maybe they prefer the the sort of contrasted look of silver and black parts.
0: I think the levers too aren't they? The lever blades aren't they? Not silver. Uh, Lever blades are silver. They're not polished silver. They're
2: like I think they're anodized, but um, but yeah, it's. uh, yeah, obviously, then you've got a, a hood cover and a plastic, um, plastic body around that as well. So that's all black as well. So yeah, and then the center of the trailer as well is is black. So, um, but yeah, I think it's 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 pretty sweet. I just I'm kind of wishing it wasn't a limited edition release. I wish it was just part of the lineup like Shimano used to do. You know, they used to offer 105 in in black and silver, and it'd be awesome if they continued that. But I'm sure it's more expensive for them to do the silver group than it is the black. So, oh, unquestionably. So that would complicate things in the marketplace by having two different priced groups.
0: Well, naturally, what you would do is you just raise the price of the other one to match. Of course. <laughs> it would <laughs> make it less else confusing, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, anyway, I, I think it's cool. I just wish it were less limited. Yeah. And as much as we continue to talk about this, uh, I mean, on the one hand, it sort of gives me a little bit of hope that Shimano at least maybe could consider doing something like this on the roadside. Um, but my guess is that would probably depend heavily on how GRX Limited is received now. Um, I mean, my guess is that if this stuff is absolutely flying off the shelves and there's just monstrous demand for it, uh, then maybe that'll send a signal to Shimano that like, Hey, like maybe people actually like polished silver. Like there's still a lot of aluminum bits on a lot of the road bikes, uh, a lot of the road bike components that they have out there. And a lot of that stuff could look really cool in polished silver.
2: It's coming back. I think, I think it did the fashion of silver parts had died off, which is why brands stopped doing it. But I think it's, it's absolutely coming back.
0: Um, But speaking about kind of like nice polished things and, I guess, high-end stuff in general. So we did mention that, Dave, you were recently at the Handmade Bicycle Show Australia mm-hmm. uh, in Melbourne, right? Mm. Yep. Uh, how was that? That's awesome. Seems like pretty. it's basically your favorite event of the year.
2: It's it's easily my favorite event of the year. And I've heard the likes of... Uh, Josh Portner is probably one of the only people I know that's sort of been to all, the, all of those Handmade Shows. And he remarked in past that it was probably the best vibe he had been to and one of his favorites, if not his the favorite. Uh and it's only gotten better since then. It's gotten bigger and uh more spacious and yeah, it's it's cool. They hold it in like an old shipbuilding workshop. Uh so it's kind of got that Yeah, it's just got a very cool atmosphere to it. Um and they have yeah a beer sponsor, a coffee sponsor, or not sponsor, but they have coffee. Uh and <laughs> It's, it's neatly done. So basically what, they, what the event does is they provide everyone the same stands. They provide the bike stands and then they provide the signage for the builders. And all the builders have to do is bring the bikes. And what you get is uh, you get like this consistent feel where someone who might make only five bikes a year is sort of visually on the same page as Borm or Bastion. Uh, so it, it creates this really cohesive feel where your, your eyes are focused on the bikes and not distracted by, by signage and similar. That seems so refreshingly egalitarian. It really is. It really is. So yeah, it's, it's one of the only events I go to where I actually feel rejuvenated for the bicycle industry.
0: That, that sounds very, very negative, but it's, uh, well, I mean, Dave, I think it's safe to say that people who are regular listeners of nerd alert, would probably agree that we tend to be sometimes a little grumpy. Mm-hmm. A little. Uh, you, you did have a clear favorite from this show, however, right? Yeah, I had a few that were like, ooh, I, w- I would ride that. Um, well, let, let's put it this way. Yes. If you had, say, $20,000 or so to I don't spend know on if an that's absolute enough. dream bike. Mm-hmm. Not sure <laughs> if really, that would be enough. 25000 Let's Uh, just say you had a giant bucket of money fall Mm -hmm. into your lap Mm. and you were going to use that on whatever custom Australian-made road-ish bike. Mm. What would you get?
2: I'd get a Pinarello Greville F, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) I would say the one that left the biggest impression on me was... And I will say uh, this builder often leaves the biggest impression on me uh, and has done so since launching probably five years ago but it's a prover so they have um mark hester's the builder and he has a a model called the speciale uh which is started off started life off as a, a a steel bike with a carbon seat tube that was bonded in and then basically um he used 3d printed lugs 3d metal printed lugs at the seat tube junction and at the bottom bracket and a few other places to sort of um add unique shapes and do, do some profiles that you wouldn't be able to do with just standard tubing. Uh, and that bike I've loved. And what he's basically done is he's now doing that bike in titanium and he's now using an nv integrated cockpit on the front of it. So NV fork, MV NV one-piece handlebar and stem. But he's taken his own path with the headset. So... Uh, that bike, I think, MV are using like a modified Chris King headset, like a custom Chris King headset. Normally, it's a custom Chris King. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, Mark's basically decided to just make his own custom headset. So, it's using a three D titanium printed top cap, a three D titanium printed split ring, both of which are machined after after printing uh and those form a pretty tight compression so they kind of lock in place to the point that when you're assembling the bike it'll actually hold the fork in place while just pushing them down so he says it lets you really dial in your hose lengths and things like that without having to have a third hand uh but you go a low, um, a layer deeper and he's got uh he's using ceramic speed slt bearings um top and bottom he's also then he custom makes a seal that sits in a, in its own machine groove above those bearings. So he's confident that no sweat or water can come in from the top. Uh, and then of course he's also made his own crown race out of stainless steel because why not? And it forms a a more integrated look than anything he could do off the shelf. And then when things get really crazy, uh, is that head tube is actually two pieces. So He's, the bottom half of the head tube is a, para, is a custom Paragon Machine Works titanium head tube, which is machined to his spec. Uh, the top half is a 3D titanium printed lug. Uh, and then when he gets the frame dimensions, he cuts the, that Paragon Machine Works bit to length. And then he radially welds the two pieces together. And then he machines in the headset bearing bores. That sounds like a lot of work, Dave. It sounds like an insane amount of work, which kind of like when you start to understand that level of detail in his bikes, it's, that's why I, I think he's, that's, that's why I want that bike.
0: Not to mention the fact that it is absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. It really is. Yeah. So it's... Uh, so, so how much would that bike actually cost you?
2: I actually don't know.
0: Um, <laughs> I, I don't think I asked pricing on
2: any bike over the weekend um barring a few mountain bikes but uh yeah it's i think it's safe to say that it's out of my price point um and i was also telling a few people over the weekend that prover is like the one builder that i kind of kicked myself for talking so much about because when i first saw his bikes i think he'd built like 20 frames and his prices were actually affordable for me uh and I was like, oh, he's the future of Australian building. I should, I should order one. And then instead of ordering one, I just told everyone about it. Uh, and then the following year I saw him I'm like, Hey, how's it going? He's like, Oh yeah, I've, you know, I've got 200 orders. Um, and, I was like, <laughs> and I've had to raise my price. I'm like, damn it. So anyway, it's uh, yeah, that's, that's the, the bike to watch for. There was one other though. Um, I will say there's two other things that I saw that uh, are top of mind at the moment for me is, uh, the other one was BORM. Um, they've created their own box, which kind of was a... They'd collaborated with Rafa on a on a bike with New jurace and uh, Silka was part of the collaboration. And because of that, BORM had access to the team that Rafa used to design its Apple products and the packaging associated with those products going into Apple stores around the world. Uh, so they've kind of helped create this cardboard box for BORM Of the idea being that um, you basically, it's a reusable box. uh, The bike slides out on its own corrugated cardboard sled out of the box. And then from there, you can build it in about, I don't know, less than five minutes. If you've never done it before, it's probably five minutes. Uh, The handlebars are attached straight in line. You basically just need to attach the wheels um, and put on the, the seat, seat post. And all of that can be done with the tool that sits in the rear through axle. Um, And that's the only tool you need for assembly. Uh, So it's just, it's a very cool approach. He hasn't got any sort of patent protections on it. Uh, He just, when I asked him about it, he's like, I'll just be happy if people give me recognition for it. Uh, So I expect that to be copied because the weird shaping of that box basically means that the shipping dimensions, the, the volume, um, match a regular bike box. So with the way everything's going with integrated cockpits, I think brands will be
0: very um, enthused to copy that design. Yeah, because I guess the, the Colnago C68 that I reviewed recently, that one also had an integrated cockpit that, uh, that came installed on the steer and everything, straight, the bars were not turn or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And that box... Is massive. Yep, like absolutely massive. I can't even imagine what it would have cost to ship that thing from Italy, oh. um, because yep. it's about to go back to Italy, and it's about to be really expensive to ship back too. So, yeah.
2: One other, uh, the the third one that's um, on my mind is um there's a brand out of Byron Bay, sort of New South Wales Queensland border, uh, called Woods Bicycle Co. And they make some really lovely like braised BMX bikes, but they've also for a few years been doing really nice steel uh, road bikes. And why they're on my mind is that they had a road bike with integrated cabling, but it was using a one and one eighth steer, round steerer tube at the top and the cables just disappeared into this skinny steel frame without any visibility to the point that I actually pulled the rear brake, just double checking that there actually was a hose installed. Um it, it. Does, yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive. Um, and from what I understand is it's an OE available product um, and it passes ISO standard testing. And how that's basically done is that the steerer tube is slotted. So the hoses actually come in through a slot at the very top of the steerer tube. And then they've custom made their own compression plug for both hoses to run through the center of the steerer tube from the top. Uh, and then, obviously, there has to be exit ports for that. Um, so the steerer is then slotted again.
0: So, Dave, is this the ISO fork test that we were just talking about last this week? This is where the ISO was fork talking. test that has problems. <laughs> the one that basically doesn't include the steerer tube.
2: Yeah, yeah. So uh, these guys, they're taking safety seriously. They're going. They're planning to build their own testing jig and and basically test it as a a, a fully built system um, and run it through all sorts of things before they start selling these um so that's positive uh but yeah it's i I just thought that was interesting the way things are going um obviously i'm not stoked on more holes in stereotubes um but also it unfortunately did look incredibly good
0: (laughs) well we were talking a minute ago about how Prices seem to be continuing to go up for various things. Uh, Prices for high-end custom bikes certainly have not gone down. Um, However, Dave, you and I were talking the other day, and it sounded like we may actually really be starting to see a downturn in prices, at least at certain segments of the market. Is that correct? Uh, I'm not sure if we'll see a downturn in prices. We'll certainly
2: see um, sales. I think think it's probably... What I and I- maybe an increase in discounts, an increase in discounts. Yeah, it sounds like the the industry shortages are starting to level out in some categories. Um, so the rumors I was hearing is that um, that at least in Australia, that eight hundred to twelve hundred dollar sort of mountain bike that was the COVID bike uh, that people were willing to buy any size they could get their hands on. Um, that style of bike is now sitting in surplus in warehouses around the country. Um, and I'm sure it's similar elsewhere in the world. Uh, so yeah, I think that's, that's probably just the start of things starting to level out and return back to normal pre um, pandemic pandemic uh, demand.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, I don't think we, we probably shouldn't say it because this, this was kind of a rumor or speculation or something, but we had heard uh, some talk within the industry that a, Rather large brand uh, had recently canceled an OEM order of a million units. Uh, That's a rather large change in their order. Um, Mm -hmm. So that that should give you some indication as to uh, how much the pendulum is starting to swing in the other direction. So I know that we have brought this up several times in the past, but... Uh, it just seems that we are continuing to get a little bit more information about how this really is actually happening. So yeah. uh, whether or not this results in actual decreases in price, probably not. I mean, even during big periods of inflation, prices don't tend to go back in the other direction. Um, but hopefully this means good things in terms of availability. Yeah. Um, hopefully it also means – well, hopefully it doesn't mean that there's a huge um, – huge reduction in the number of cyclists particularly new cyclists that are that are out and about uh so hopefully we've managed to retain some of those during this COVID the, the whole covid boom but i guess that'll remain to be seen but either way um I, I don't think too many people will complain about it being a little bit easier to find bikes
2: yeah the the other thing i've heard rumored <clears throat> is that and this isn't necessarily a positive thing but uh the, the war going on in Europe at the moment has actually led to, um, unexpected supply for other parts of the world. So, uh, Ukraine and Russia were traditionally pretty strong cycling markets, uh, and a lot of brands are now redirecting that stock that was ordered, um, elsewhere to the market, uh, to other parts of the world. So, um, so there's a few factors going on here that are Helping to, um, yeah, increase supply in in areas that haven't had it.
0: Mm, interesting. Well, we've promised to continue to comment on this as we have more information, and that is what we are going to do. Um, so, yeah, we'll just continue to keep an eye on this and see what's going on. All right. Well, that pretty much does it with our news for today's episode, and we're starting to run a little bit long. So, I think, uh, especially since we have Ronan here. I think we need well, to dive in. I'm actually
1: going to have to listen back to this episode because, yeah, I had to attend to <coughs> an upset child there and I, I missed what, what Dave's favorite uh, bike from the, from the show was. So I'm looking forward to listening back now.
2: Or you can just check out the gallery. It'll be in the, <laughs> it, it'll be in the second
0: gallery from the, cover, uh, from the handmade show. Uh, but, Ronan, you are going to be able to participate in our Ask a Mechanic segment.
1: d Bearings, Disk Brakes, and Rim Brakes, Sealants and Chains.
0: So we do not have Zach with us today, but I'm pretty sure the three of us will fare just fine here. Uh, We're just going to go ahead and jump right into the first few questions. Uh, As I've mentioned in the past, uh, these questions do generally come from our Vela Club members. However, we are also pulling questions from our cycling tips forum as well. So if you have a question that you'd like to see answered on Ask Mechanic, feel free to go ahead and dive into the cycling tips forum. I believe that's forum.cyclingtips.com. Go ahead and post a... Question there in the tech section, and then we'll go ahead and see if we can get that answered for you on Ask a Mechanic. So, our first question comes from Jim Richards. Um, if I'm swapping disc wheels from another bike to use as a second wheel set, uh, should I bed the rotors in with the existing pads on the bike, or do I not need to think about that as they have already been through the bedding process on a different bike? So, this is something that we've answered before in various incarnations, um, and I'm pretty sure our answer is still the same. Um, it is ideal to bed in a second set of rotors with that same set of pads that you're going to be using. Not necessarily 100% required. I think it maybe depends a lot on what your expectations are for your braking performance. Uh, I think if you want ultimate braking performance, then you should go through that whole process. But otherwise, it's it's oftentimes not the end of the world.
2: Um, I would say it is typically absolutely fine to just swap them in and out as long as the brake pad material and even the brake like the brake pads are identical between the two bikes um so in that like you're using the same brand of pad and the same compound of pad um and you should be fine um and that's exactly what say the world tour guys are doing and they are not using the same wheels every day you know they they don't have wheels that go with the bikes they just get switched in and out randomly um and i think that's fine but yeah if you've got say, metallic pads on one bike and then you've got resin pads in another bike, then that, that'll absolutely be a problem and you will have
0: probably noisy and ineffective brakes. Well, Jem, go ahead and swap those wheels in and out and let us know how it goes. Um, our next question comes from Anthony Privetera. Uh, Anthony's asking, if my buddy cracked a top tube on a carbon road bike, is that something that can be repaired? Oof. Well, uh, get, we did get a little bit more information on this. It uh, turns out this bike essentially sort of just like f- Fell over somewhat onto like the corner of a brick building, um, so less than ideal, as our friend Raul would like to say. Um, Anthony, this is not something that we can necessarily answer from here remotely. Certainly, without seeing it and analyzing it and all the other stuff, uh, it's uh, top two repairs are generally pretty straightforward from my understanding. Um, but this is something that your buddy is going to have to bring to a reputable carbon frame repair outfit and have them do the evaluation for you
2: yeah i, I was I, I would say anything is repairable it's just a matter of how much it's going to cost and what it's going to look like afterward yeah the worse the damage the more
1: it's going to cost you basically i i cracked a top tube on a carbon frame way back in 2004 a look kg486 was like the first carbon bike i had and yeah i went straight on in the corner and cracked the top tube and at the time we didn't think you could fix carbon frames I don't know if you could at the time but about five or six years later when I was living in Belgium uh, at, at one of the team staff sort of said to me "Oh yeah I know a guy can fix a carbon frame so I brought my look frame from Ireland to Belgium uh give it to this guy to f- to fix I got it back I think it was about like three months later I got it back and first warning sign was sort of the the paint job which looked nothing like it originally looked like uh, <laughs> and then the, the second warning was that the frame looked like it was sort of you know sealed over again but it it had no structural rigidity at all it had no strength it, it wasn't really fixed um and the yeah long story short I can't really tell you if it was fixed or not because I never really had the guts to actually write it again so <laughs> um, oh that's um, a I mean I yeah, I mean,
0: I, I did say to bring that frame to a reputable frame yeah, repair yeah. If, place. If yes. someone says,
2: I know a guy, then uh, <laughs> it's probably not the one.
1: No, it's, uh, carbon repair has come a long way in the 12 or 13 years since then. So,
0: um, Speaking of disc brakes, we'll come back to that. Uh, the next question comes from James Wynn, who has asked us questions before. How important is it to match the disc brake rotor to the caliper? Uh, in other words, he says that he just put some campy rotors on a bike with Yokozuna calipers. It seems mm-hmm. to work great. Uh, but how much does the matchup matter, if at all?
1: Well, I can tell you it didn't matter this evening when I was riding the SRAM red uh, calipers with Campy rotors. Um, it didn't. Uh, your bike didn't explode. It didn't explode? Well, not yet. I haven't checked it since I got home. Maybe it did afterwards. And believe it or not, the spokes didn't overheat and break either. So it was all around. It was a massive success. <laughs> you got lucky. Running. You got lucky. <laughs> I got lucky. I, I was only out for an hour. So yeah, who knows about an hour and one minute playing with fire running playing with fire um James I will say that
0: the dimensionally rotors generally speaking are very common in terms of things like thickness and diameter and stuff like that um however <clears throat> however pad shapes do vary uh, some of them are are taller or shorter than other ones have like more swept area that sort of thing um so I would say it's not generally super important uh you may still certainly experience some maybe some degradation in terms of performance. Uh, but in particular, you might experience some uh, some unwanted side effects in terms of noise. Uh, that would be probably the biggest thing that is a potential side effect from this. Um, so I'd say as, as long as you're using rotors that have a similar shape and dimension to the height of the braking surface, uh, you're more than likely fine, but you still may
1: experience some additional noise compared to what a, a proper match set would do. I just to go back to the the ride there this evening. I, I sort of I was just testing two different wheels. One, you know, uh, and they were both from the same manufacturer, but one had the original SRAM rotors on there, and the other had the Campag rotors. And you know, despite the same hub, I did have to realign my calipers. So that's something to keep an eye on. That you know that you might just have to realign the, the calipers. Um, I I probably wouldn't do it. Often, no, you know, it was just a quick fix for tonight because I wanted to test one front wheel versus the other, but there definitely was. And I didn't get the sort of disc brake squeal that we, you know, we all know, but I definitely did get the sort of SRAM disc brake noise uh, a bit louder. Uh, it sounded like my brakes were further underwater than they usually sound like they are.
2: A, dr- a drowning turkey. Yes.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. So basically, so basically, it's probably not going to have any sort of major ill effects, but it might be noisier. You might not quite get exactly the same brake performance, but it's not like your bike is going to disintegrate or anything. Next question. This one comes from Bill Lindquist. Bill has a five-year-old aluminum gravel bike that he has used for a commuter for several years. Uh, he said he wants to start commuting again because he's got to start going back to the office and he's looking to make some modest upgrades to improve his bike. He's got some DT Swiss P1800 aluminum wheels that uh, that he replaced with some carbon wheels on his road bike. Uh, and he's wondering if there would be any issues putting 35 or 38 mil gravel tires on those rims, uh, run tubeless, uh, those wheels have an 18 mil internal width. Uh, he's likely going to be on some rough pavement, with some occasional gravel mixed in. Uh, and as a side question, the bike the bike has quick release dropouts, but the wheels are set up for through axles. Is, is there anything that he can do to convert those? Um, Bill, I'll say, I don't think there'll be any issues whatsoever running a tire of that width on a rim of that width, because... I think it's important for everyone to know that while wider rims are certainly very commonplace right now and often recommended for tires that are that wide, it's hardly necessary. It really wasn't that long ago that mountain bike rims were basically that width and they were running tires that were significantly bigger than 35 or 38 mils. So that shouldn't be a problem at all. Um, so as long as those wheels are designed to be run tubeless, then it's probably okay. Um, and then most of DT Swiss hubs are... Built to be convertible between different axle drop uh, between different axle standards. So, as long as you can find the
1: right conversion kit for those hubs, then you should be good to go. It should be pretty straightforward. I actually got one of those through axle to quick release adapters for a set of DT Swiss wheels here, and it's like a, literally a five second job to pull one off and pull the other. No tools needed, nothing. It's super, Unless and caps the yeah. Well, they, they weren't stuck on the wheels I went to, so it was a quick job, yep. but yeah,
0: Ronan has very, very strong
1: fingers, Dave. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Whereas <laughs> I,
2: have i for the last decade, I've relied on specialty tools in my hand.
0: I don't ever use my hands. So, Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. I believe you have. A, don't you have a hydraulic, a custom hydraulic press with like a custom three D printed printed tool thing to for for each style of end cap that you that you can possibly see? I don't. But I think I need that one now. Hmm. Mm.
2: Sounds very good. Trouble. Trouble. Yeah. I'll give them ideas. <laughs> no, but, but I question. do I do have uh special tools and techniques for for d- using those uh, those end caps when they do get stuck. So there are some methods, but we'll see if anyone asks to hear them in a future episode.
0: Hmm, okay. Well, our next question comes from Tom Simchak. Tom said he's been warned off using bearings that allow a BB30 crankset to be used in a BB86 frame, given the tiny size of the bearings involved. Uh, he said, Dub, however, this is SRAM Dub that we're talking about, uh, that spindle is 29 millimeters. Actually, I think officially it's 28.99. Um... But he said that har- that seems hardly better and would presumably have the same durability concerns as BB-30, uh, though there's a lot of SRAM and Canyon's lineup, which suggests that there are a lot of dub setups on BB-86 frames out there. So is GXP, which is SRAM's 24mm spindle, uh, spindle size, is GXP likely to perform better than dub in a BB-86 context? Dave, why don't you take this one?
2: Uh, I will say BB-86 is actually... Kind of a Shimano collaboration design with a few other frame manufacturers, and it was initially it was designed around a twenty-four millimeter crank spindle, uh, and it never was really designed to have something larger than that, which would then force a very small bearing into into that shell. Uh, So, going larger than twenty-four millimeter spindle will always um, bring compromises as far as as space for the bearings. Um, So, Dub is okay but not ideal. Uh, and then likewise, 30 millimeter spindles, it's quite normal to burn through bearings with that, with that setup. So, uh, yes, if you can still get it, I would say a GXP would be better than dub, but at the same time, you often just have to do what you have to do. And there are quite a few bikes rolling around with, subcranks cranks or 30 millimeter spindles inside of that bottom bracket shell. And for the most part, the users
0: are happily unaware. <laughs> uh, I will also add that while there are a variety of different setups out there to make that combination work, uh, the best one that I know of, um, I know Enduro does make a custom bearing for that setup uh, where the bearing essentially has a flange built into the outer race so that it it is the bearing itself that gets pressed into the shell. It's not like like a bearing inside of a cup. Mm -hmm. So that way they're able to squeeze in uh, basically a little bit more bearing ball, uh, than what you would normally see, and the ones that uh, that I'm thinking of from enduro have double row bearings on either side to kind of help distribute the load. It's still not fantastic because the bearing balls are still quite small. Um, but if you are going to go with something like that in that sort of frame, then that's probably the setup that I would that's probably the setup that I would recommend. Um, but yeah, I think it'd be I think it'd be I think it should be expected that that bearing setup is not going to last as long as something that uses a bigger bearing ball. So that that seems pretty. I think it's like more or less a foregone conclusion. Yeah. All right. All right. Last question. This one also comes from the forum. This comes from Eric Long. So just uh, you'll have to excuse me. This is quite a long question. Um, Eric said he's struggling to understand one of the current component trends among manufacturers of electronic components that historically, and we're talking about the last 50 years or so, that we could find parts to keep an old bike functional may or may not have been peak quality, but it was, it could be made to work. For example, if today you have a road bike from the mid-90s with a Shimano 8-speed drivetrain and you wore out a cassette or broke a shifter, there is a suitable replacement being made by Shimano. It's very basic, but it'll function. You can ride the bike. So far, uh, Eric says, this isn't happening with electronic parts, which is concerning. Uh, For example, if you bought a Di2 road bike in 2009 and a shifter, derailleur, or wire from that era fails, you may have to buy a whole new groupset. So there is no compatible downgrade being made for that system. That so he doesn't really know what to tell customers when they ask about replacing a 10-speed Di2 rear derailleur. 20 years ago, he could find a shifter for their mid-80s specialized mountain bike, and he still can't get today. He can surf eBay for Di2 parts and hope for the best, but that supply will inevitably die off. So this is not just a Shimano problem, he says. He's got two bikes built with SRAM 11-speed ETAP. Great stuff. But if he needs to replace a front derailleur, he's kind of out of luck. There's no replacement available. He can maybe find one used, so on and so forth. So with all this in mind, uh, Eric said he's curious what everyone's thoughts are. What have you all experienced with maintainability and replaceability? Does anyone know of an industry manufacturer working on functional replacement parts for older systems? Or are we headed for a situation with Di2 parts and wires that resemble essentially catalytic converter thefts? What can we do or what can we look forward to?
2: Planned obsolescence
0: is what's happening here. It's really unfortunate because, yeah, like Dave said just now, it, it, it certainly is not like mechanical components in which you can sort of kind of like get things to work oftentimes or kind of like can make modifications to get something to work or uh, you know just get things to function as you have certainly uh, gotten to experience in the past electronic components if they're not meant to go together they will not go together uh, like even if you can figure out a way oftentimes to like splice wires and do that sort of thing even if you can physically make the electrical connections if you can't get those parts to talk to one another to one another in like you know in the language that they'll understand not gonna happen it's super unfortunate
1: yeah i actually ran into this problem recently with a uh campag athena eps rear derailleur. and previously i was able to scur ebay and find athena eps and chorus eps which are effectively the same thing components and actually built two group sets just from save searches on ebay and um, got these two group sets together, got them really incredibly well-priced uh, and was happy days. And then, yeah, I sold one of the bikes and the person who bought the bike came back to me and they had nipped the wire for the rear derailleur, which I knew was going to be a major <laughs> issue. Um, so I went back to eBay, couldn't find a rear derailleur, went online, couldn't find a rear derailleur, went to Campag, they didn't have a rear derailleur. Reiterators for Athena EPS do not exist uh, anymore, and the end up. I was able to splice the wires together and fix that one, but you know, it it it, it sort of highlighted th- this problem to me at that time as well. Was just you know, in a couple of years' time, that if it's a more serious issue, like if the battery goes, which is probably likely to happen at some point, I'm not going to be able to splice batteries together or yeah, batteries together and fix a battery. Uh, And that group set could be, you know, a a perfectly good group set could be, you know, made redundant basically because something simple is non-replaceable on it. And yeah, it's a worrying trend. I I don't really see anything happening at the moment that, or or anybody at the moment trying to offer parts. And it's just like you said, James, there's so many complexities and different systems at play here, you know, to offer individual components uh, as, you know, to standalone options or uh products yeah you you you'd be into a minefield of the the sheer number of different components you would have to offer you know because everybody's problem could be different
2: what what i would love to see is kind of like the generic battery that you see in power tools or in camera, in cameras but that being offered in cycling and i i don't believe we'll see this because i believe the cycling market at least at this end at this high end electronic components market it's too niche but what I'd love to see is like a universal kit, like you know, a battery that comes with four different plug adapters that you can plug it into and program it to, to fit with all the available group sets or a front derailleur that you could, again, fit somehow via different wire adapters. So it's one front derailleur, but it would work with all the different shifters. And in my mind, something like Archer components probably have the, the capability to pull something like this off um because they currently can convert any rear derailleur pull ratio to work with a wireless shifter so i mean it's not too much of a stretch to imagine they could go the other way around but it's uh, yeah i just think it, the demand isn't there to to justify the investment for such a product um unfortunately and i, I think we will need it more and more because it's very clear that the industry is not supporting these older products after five eight ten years um and there will be a lot of bikes that end up in landfill. A lot of bike products that end up in landfill as a result of it. Um, so yeah, I'd love to see it, but I'm, I'm at the same time, I unfortunately, I don't think we will.
0: Yeah, I mean, we ran into this not too long ago, just within uh, our own cycling tips family. So our social media editor, Mike Better, uh, for years he was running a, I believe it was a, a first generation ten speed Shimano Dura Ace group set, and Mikey rides his bike a lot, and he got to the point where. Uh, essentially the pivots in his rear derailleur just wore out. Uh, The rear derailleur got so sloppy that it just wouldn't really shift very well anymore, which says a lot about how much Mikey was shifting and and riding. Um, But by the time that thing wore out, unfortunately, you just could not get another replacement rear derailleur. Uh, We eventually set up Mikey on a whole new bike with a whole new group set and everything, but it's just really kind of a bummer because the only thing that he needed was a a uh, a replacement rear derailleur. That's all he needed to get that bike back up and running, couldn't do it, and this was just a couple of years ago.
2: Yeah, so yeah, I'd, I'd, something I'd I'd love the industry to start paying attention to and to be aware of and to build in. Like Shram's done a decent job. I mean, the front derailleur that Eric just gave the example of the eleven speed front derailleur that he can't get. That's that's not great, but at least Shram's. I think the new twelve speed shifters you can program to work with eleven speed derailleurs, and Shram's still producing uh, a new re derailleur. Uh, for its eleven-speed group, so I mean
0: that's they're probably doing it better
2: than the other companies. Um,
0: still not great though, because it's still even not looking at, at yeah, even looking at SRAM when they went from first generation to e, uh, when they went from first generation ETAP to the AXIS system, mm-hmm. even though a lot of those components looked the same, they were not they, they weren't compatible because the wireless language that they were speaking was different. So you could not get those components to to talk to each other.
2: Yeah, so they they've at least done something for it they haven't done everything sure but uh but yeah i think moving forward it's it's absolutely something I'd, I'd love the bike industry to to answer for and you know you've got shimano not to not to point the finger at shimano but you've got shimano who are making quite a big deal about going to environmental environmentally friendly packaging at the moment where all of their parts are coming in recyclable cardboard bags and um paper bags and cardboard boxes instead of Single use plastic, and that they're they're on this path of being a more sustainable, responsible company, but at the same time, they're creating products with planned obsolescence uh, and i I think that is the next step for them is to figure out how to reduce that planned obsolescence.
0: but well, one thing that's at least a little bit of a step in a positive direction, so i, I this was just published today. I wrote up a little news article uh, on that u k company that we on that u k company that we've talked about before, ratio technology. So they keep coming out with these aftermarket ratchets for older uh, SRAM double tap road levers to, to adapt them toward you know, more modern drivetrains, and they just came out with another ratchet kit that lets you use a SRAM double tap 10 or 11 speed lever with a 13 speed Campy Ekar cassette and chain, uh, using it also continuing to use an older uh, SRAM one by rear derailleur, hmm. uh, which. Assuming this works as well as the other conversion kits of theirs that I've tried in the past, that is awesome. And yeah, uh, cool. I love seeing that sort, of, that sort of innovation, that sort of creativity. Uh, it does breathe new life into older components, and that, unfortunately, is something that just cannot be done with electronic stuff.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think the next step for them is their own shifter, because those, those older SRAM shifters are getting harder and harder to find, and I, I priced up a set recently, and they are sky high. Oof. Yikes. So yeah, it'll be cool to see the next generation from that company.
0: I, I I dare say they are, I I dare say they're, they're, they're thinking pretty big over there. I, li- I like where their, where their heads are at. Um, that's definitely a company that we'll be following pretty closely in the future. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of Nerd Alert. You may have noticed that we do not have ads on Nerd Alert and that's not because we don't get asked for them. Uh, however, we like to keep Nerd Alert nice and clean so we don't do any ads from endemic bike companies. However, As we mentioned in a previous episode, we are going to be doing some fun free ads for various, uh, I guess, reader-owned or reader-related family businesses. So this week's Nerd Alert podcast is brought to you by Blue Flame Propane in upstate New York, because it's more than just heating your home and peace of mind. It's the clean fuel of the future. Blue Flame Propane is a locally owned company that's been doing quality business for over 20 years. They offer free tank installation. They have a referral program and emergency 24-7 service available. So if you have propane needs in Orange or Sullivan counties in upstate New York, feel free to call Blue Flame Propane at 845-361-1789 for your commercial and residential propane needs. Thanks to Jason Cooley from Blue Flame Propane for sponsoring this week's episode. And with that, thanks again for listening. Make sure you tell your friends about Nerd Alert. If you haven't already done so, please go ahead and leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It really does help us quite a bit. And in the meantime, we will see you next week. Thanks again.